Man, that's such a good word at the end, isn't it? That's such a good word. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. You are so good, God. You are so good. Man, he's good. He's good. First, would you tell them what you told me? I'm going to let you do it. I told you I was going to let you do it. The Lord is saying, come sit at the table like you were invited. And so many times we come to the table feeling like we got the secondhand invitation. Anyone ever been there? A friend through a friend invited you and you're like, I kind of feel like I should come, but I didn't really get the invite from like the host. So I'm not really sure if I should go. Well, Jesus is saying, I invited you. So come to the table and come sit down with me. Because when you come to the table and you know you're invited, you walk in the fullness of your identity. You walk in the fullness of his word and the truth and the calling on your life. So when we come to the table because we are invited by him, there's a boldness and a confidence that comes out. good when you get out of the way and just let it go. <clears throat> you know what's what's cool in that transition, what the Lord showed her, what we were just singing, is the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, if you're going to sit down at the table, you're going to taste something. And you're going to see that the Lord is good. When you're invited to His table, everything is good. Everything is good. Amen. God, you are so good. You are so good. We, we, we glorify you. We, we thank you. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Thank you, Lord. Had a couple of, <clears throat> couple of words just come in. Um, if, you're, if you're in here or maybe you're watching online or anything like that, maybe you've been uh, to the doctor or something like that and, and you're you're having problems with your elbows or maybe an elbow um you know there's a diagnosis out there when you when your elbow starts hurting this tennis elbow well um i've had tennis elbow but um i don't play tennis you know so it's just it's just like elbow um but seriously if if you're dealing with pain in your elbow Right now is the time to receive your healing. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you that you are, you are Lord. You are, you are king over elbow pain in Jesus' name. Father, we, we pray right now that your healing power would just penetrate into the elbow. Father, heal those tendons, heal those cells, heal those um, muscles. Everything that has to do with the, the integral parts that you put together, that you made in our bodies. Father, I pray right now over elbows all over the place. And I thank you, God. If that's you this morning, do something that you could not do. I mean, don't hit the guy next to you, but, but you know, raise your arms, raise your hands and work that out, okay? Work it out. Work it out. If you've still got pain, just receive more. Receive more. It ain't done. It ain't done. It ain't done. Amen. And then we got another word for healing. Um, and this one's, this one's pretty serious. So um, 
be, be wise in this one. Because uh, if you're dealing with any kind of chest pains right now, any kind of chest pains, I mean, like I said, you got to be wise with those things, you know. But God is here to heal the chest pains. He's here to heal chest pains. And physical chest pains, whether it be caused from stress, whether it be caused from heart disease, whatever, Father, create in us a brand new heart. Create in us a brand new heart. Put on the inside of us, Father. If there's anybody dealing with chest pains that has to do with the heart, put a new heart on the inside of us, Father. Say, well, that's that's kind of weird, but that's what Psalm 51 says. Create in me, O God, a brand new heart. So, Father, thank you for that. Heal those muscles. Heal those pains. Father, we thank you so much for your healing power. As we sit down at your table today and receive your goodness and taste and see that you are good. Amen. Well, if you would, turn around and tell somebody, God is so good to me. And then you can have a seat. How's everybody this morning? Man, God is good. God is good. It's good to see you guys this morning. For those of you that are uh, in-house this morning, thank you so much for coming. We appreciate y'all so much. My name is Darren Gleghorn. I'm the lead pastor here at Cowboy Church. And uh, we just, uh, man, what an honor it is to get to lead you. What an honor it is to get to be uh, a part of this awesome staff to be a part of this leadership here at Cowboy Church. Are you awake this morning? Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to welcome our online. I uh, join with Kenneth and saying that uh, you are so welcome in our place. We appreciate you uh, joining us in here and allowing us to come into your homes or wherever you're at today. We, uh, we so appreciate you guys that are online, our online campus um, it is a um, it is an honor and a pleasure to get to be with you guys today. So thank you. Um, well, you guys ready today? Um, I'm going to, I don't know, this may be a surprise to you guys, but I'm going to be talking about revival today. Um, um, you know, you may say, well, when are we going to quit talking about revival? Well, when you get it. Um, Either, either until I'm done or an, until Jesus comes back. And if you look around at our world, uh, I may be done pretty quick uh, uh, with all this stuff. But, but anyways, we're, we're going to be talking about revival again today. And, and I, I want to I talk about the hindrances to revival. I kind of led you into that a couple of weeks ago. I think C-Dub kind of last week or C-Dub, yeah, I'm sorry, C-Dub, we always call him C-Dub. But uh, CW kind of led us into some of that last week. So good, so 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 good of a message last week, and and um, man, what a, what an honor it is to get to share this pulpit with such uh, great people. Amen. 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 Hey, y'all sound just really kind of quiet today, and I don't want you to be quiet. All right. There, there's one. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyways. Um, so I'm going to be talking about revival today. So 
If you would, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if you would go over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. It is a two Bible day today. One for each of you. <laughs> um, some of you all get that, but uh, I watch too much TV, I guess. Um, Luke chapter 4 is where I'm going to go. And um, I'm going to be uh, talking to you today from the, from the New King James, which is probably my favorite. Um, and from the Passion Translation, which is Lynette's favorite. <laughs> One little voice likes Pastor Lynette. Um, she is, uh, Pastor Lynette, still in Texas, uh, down there spending time with Rhett at Dayton Christian Center. And, um, yeah. Um, so, uh, do you all know my wife, Lynette? That's, that's who I'm talking about and my son. And uh, so they're, they're down in Dayton, Texas. They're coming home tomorrow. So uh, it's going to be fun tomorrow seeing them. He is coming. Yep. Sheesh. It, it will be a very good birthday present to have my wife home. And uh, uh, today, if you're wondering what I'm doing today, I'm going home and cleaning house. Because uh, me and my daughter really don't know how to keep house, so I, I, I pray for the man that gets her, um, <clears throat> that, that his mama taught him well. Uh, so anyways, um, uh, Riyadh and I will be very busy today, so don't call me. Um, <clears throat> I won't answer the phone because I'm running the vacuum. Yes, I know how to run the vacuum. Um, Anyhow, um, here in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to get into this today. Here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is just entering into ministry. He's 30 years old, just entering into ministry. And um, he's he's starting off. And you you know, I've been there. I've I've been 30 years old. I've been entering into ministry. And and when I... (laughs) When, when I enter into, when, when somebody enters into ministry, you go in with guns blazing. You know, you, you, you got something to say. God's got a calling on your life. And um, it's a, it, it is a wake-up call when you enter into ministry. And so Jesus enters into ministry here in, in Luke chapter 4. And um, he's, he's coming in. And um, I'm, I'm going to let the scripture explain itself. But what I, what I want to really point out here in Luke chapter 4 where I'm going to read is this moment that Jesus is in the synagogue reading from the scripture of Isaiah. It's a Kairos moment. And, I, and if you're here for the first time or you haven't been here or you haven't heard us talk about a Kairos moment, this year we have been, we've been talking about Pastor Lynette has brought out what a, what a Kairos moment is. And, and um, see, there's, there's two uh, Greek words for the word time in the New Testament. The word time in the New Testament. Two Greek words. And those Greek words are chronos and kairos. Chronos is where we get our English word chronograph or watch. It is measured time. Chronos is about measured time. Are you with me? Kairos is the word time in the Greek but it is an appointed time. It's a special time. It is the right time. 
the best word, the best definition I like is it is an opportune time. It's a time of opportunity. So this moment that Jesus is here starting out in ministry is a Kairos moment. It is an opportune time. Not just an opportune time for him, but it's an opportune time for everyone in the room that is with him at this point. So let's go over here to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to go to verse 16. Verse 16 is where I'm going to start. And it says, So he came to Nazareth, talking about Jesus, where he had been brought up. So he's going back to his hometown, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And he says this, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20 says, then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus steps into that place. He's, he's, he's back home in his hometown. Everybody knows who he is. He has chosen to stand up and read from the book of Isaiah. The particular scripture, he didn't pick this. This was a time that this scripture was read in the synagogue. It was a time, a three-year period. They went through um, the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and they went through what they call the half Torah. The half Torah is the prophets. It's readings from the prophets. So they did this on the Sabbath day and on special holidays. This was an appointed time. This day that he stood up to read, they gave him this, this section of scripture to read, and he reads it knowing that he's called into the ministry. He's released into the ministry. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The good news. And he goes through all these things, and he gets down to the bottom, And he says, to preach or to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, we may not understand what that means, the acceptable year of the Lord, but every Jew in that synagogue understood what that meant. Because the acceptable year of the Lord to them, to the Jewish people in that time, was the year of Jubilee. He's talking about the year of Jubilee. So what is the year of Jubilee? You can go back and read that in Leviticus chapter 25. We're not going to read it. But the year of Jubilee was so cool because the year of Jubilee, see, um, can I teach you a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 year, the, uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish culture operated in cycles of seven years. 
So every seven years, which was a Sabbath year, they, they, had a, they had a Sabbath year, okay? They would just let the land, if you were a farmer, you let the land rest. You, if you had a job, you, you rested, you took a year off. Be nice, huh? <laughs> um, so they operated in seven-year cycles. So when they had seven seven-year cycles, that was 49 years, right? So the 49th year into the 50th year was the year of Jubilee, which was a year of restoration, If you had any debt, your debt was canceled. If you were a slave to anybody because of debt, you were freed. Everything was given back in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. Everything was given back. Everything was restored. I mean, if you went into debt on the 48th year, man, you you did all right. If you owed somebody something, you didn't, it, the, the debt was wiped out. <clears throat> so they knew what the acceptable year of the Lord was. Jesus was standing up and reading this saying, I am the Jubilee. I am the restoration. I am the revival. It was a revival. It was a revival. And then he looks around at everybody and they're all looking at him. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today's your day. This is a Kairos moment. This is an appointed time. This is a day of your restoration. It's a day of your revival. So let's look at verse 22. It says, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, he, 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 he just kind of stopped their thoughts right there. And he said to them, Surely I say this, uh, Surely you shall say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you that no prophet is accepted in his own country. Hmm. That's not good news. That's not good following what he just proclaimed. Amen. Amen. Let's pray real quick before we get into this. Father, I thank you so much for your word today. And I thank you, God, for your word, that your word says that when we hear the sayings of your word, that we will be blessed. So, Father, wherever we're at in our life today, I pray, pray that as we have heard your word and as we read your word today, that we are blessed. And we will be careful to give you honor and glory for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever had somebody question who you are? I used to play a little game with the kids on the way to school when they were little, sitting in their car seats, headed to kindergarten or preschool or first grade, wherever we were at. Even I even do it to them today, but they kind of get after me a little bit. But I'll just, I'll just ask them the question. I'll say, So, 
Tell me about yourself. Oh, Dad, why do you want to ask me that question? Because, because I want to know what you think about you. I, I want to know how you see you. Of course, my kids push back on that, and <laughs> most people do. But, but uh, you know, it's, it's a fun little game that I play with the kids. But being a preacher, being a new preacher even, I have had people question me. I've had people question my calling. I've had people, I've had people interrupt me while I'm preaching and not saying amen. Um, quite the opposite. I've had people stand up and walk out of my services grumbling and complaining about what I said or my opinion on whatever the word of God is that I'm preaching. I've had people call me to their house or call me to their office and tell me what a sorry sucker I am for preaching what I preach. Seriously. And the very words of who do you think you are? Um, I've had people (laughs) tell me, I like your wife's ministry, but I cannot stand you. All right, well, brother, I love you. I love you. I'm going to preach to myself now. No. But yeah, I, I mean, uh, offended? Oh, yeah, it's so easy, so easy to get offended because, because I know who God called me to be, and I know what God called me to preach, and whether, whether people like it or not. I, uh, and, and you know what? Brother, I agree with you. I like her preaching a lot better than I like mine, too. I do. But um, I, I told her in the beginning, I said, I'll carry your Bible anywhere. I said, uh, you know, if, if God wants you to go somewhere and, and, and I can go, I'll, I'll carry your Bible. So anyways, and then he called me to pastor. So now I have to stay here when she goes. Um <laughs> Because y'all keep showing up every week. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, I've, ha- I've had people <clears throat> uh, do that to me. And I, I mean, I feel like I'm in good company because they're doing this to Jesus right here in Luke chapter 4. I, I want to read this to you from, from the Passion Translation, verse 22. From the Passion Translation says this, says, everyone, everyone was impressed by how well Jesus spoke. In awe of his beautiful words of grace that came from his lips. But they were surprised at his presumption to speak as a prophet. So they said among themselves, they said among themselves, the murmur that happened in the room said among themselves, who does he think he is? This is Joseph's son who grew up right here in Nazareth. What were they saying? They were saying, we know this kid. He grew up here. I mean, this is Joseph. Joseph was the carpenter around here. I mean, I mean, Jesus was a good kid. I mean, he never got in trouble. I mean, maybe he was good at cricket. <laughs> I think that's what they play in Israel. I, I, I don't know, you know, um, rugby or something, you know. Maybe he was good at those 
things. Jesus was good in school. He never got in trouble. He was just a, he was just a good kid. You know, he's a carpenter's son. He only had to cut once. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a good carpenter. He never had to cut twice. Some of y'all get that. I mean... He was a good kid, but but I don't know if he was that good. I, I don't I don't know. You know, he says that he's the you know basically proclaiming he's the Messiah, he's the revival, he's the restoration, and that it's fulfilled in our ears. I don't know if he's Messiah good because he's a carpenter's son. He's just the son of this blue collar guy. He's a blue collar guy. What happened to them in that moment? Why did they just dismiss this Kairos moment? Why did they miss this appointed time, this this point of opportunity? Why Why did they miss that? It was because they were looking for the spectacular. They had been seasoned in their culture that Messiah, when Messiah comes, because what Jesus read was 700 years old. For 700 years, they knew that those scriptures meant the introduction of the Messiah, but here Jesus is saying that that's him. It can't be because we're looking for the spectacular. You know, the Messiah is supposed to pull up in a Bentley chariot. He's supposed to pull up. He's supposed to be spectacular. But this guy is simple. This guy is blue collar. This guy is humble. This guy is modest. And sometimes we miss the, the modesty of the kairos because we're looking for the spectacular. We miss the revival because we're looking for the spectacular. Amen. Amen. And what happened in this moment is this simple. They missed it because they were familiar with who he was. They were familiar with him. If it would have been somebody out of the, out of the blue, they would have probably received him as the Messiah. But Jesus, they were familiar with. Familiarity. See, familiarity is dangerous. So many times we as Christians, that as we grow in our Christianity, as we become familiar with going to church and we become familiar with the Bible, that familiarity sometimes begins to cut us off from the revival that's happening around us. Sometimes we start missing those revival moments because we think we already know them. Because we become familiar with the one who brings revival. The one who is revival. And so these people are sitting there in the greatest Cairo moment, Kairos moment that they've ever been in. And I started thinking, he's in his own hometown. Who all is sitting in that meeting? Probably his mama. Probably his brothers and sisters. His friends he grew up with. The, the, the friends he played cricket with. 
the, the men and women that he and his dad built cabinets for or built a kitchen table for. People that knew him are there and they're with him. Who is in that meeting? Let, let, me, just, let me just say this. If I was preaching in my mama's church and somebody stood up and said, who do you think you are? My mama in her 79-year-old body would be on them like a duck on a June bug. My brother goes to that church. My brother would be upset if somebody shouted me down. Now, my sister-in-law, she would be on you like stink on a monkey. She's mean. That's why I love her. But if Jesus is getting this flack, his mama and brothers and sisters and friends are sitting there not saying anything or they are joining in. They hung Jesus out to dry. In verse 23 and 24 from the Passion Translations, it says this. Said so Jesus said to them, You'll quote me the proverb. Now he's, he's reacting or responding to their pushback. And he says, I suppose, uh, so Jesus said to them, I suppose you'll quote me this proverb, doctor, go heal yourself before you try to heal others. And you'll say, work miracles here in your hometown that we heard you did in Capernaum. But let me tell you, no prophet is welcome or honored in his own hometown. Familiarity. I love studying out of the New King James is where I usually study out of. But I have one Bible that I just absolutely love that I study out of, and it's called the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. Spirit-Filled Life Bible, if you don't have one and you want a good study Bible, that's one of the best. Spirit-Filled Life Bible. And in one of the footnotes, it says this, uh, in a footnote in verse 24 here in this Luke chapter 4, the footnote says this, those most familiar with great people sometimes are the least appreciative of their greatness. Those most familiar with great people sometimes are the least appreciative of their greatness. It's, it's a danger to grow familiar. It's a danger to put familiarity ahead of anything else. We're going to grow familiar with people. The more we spend time with them, the more we spend time with Christianity, and the more time we spend with Jesus, we're going to grow familiar with him. But we've got to understand there is a danger involved in that if we don't learn how to manage that. Jesus goes on. I want, to, I want to dive deeper into this. He goes on in verses 25 through 27, and you can read them on your own. But he brings up two prophets. He brings up Elijah and Elisha, who were, Elisha was the protege of um, Elijah. But Elijah, during his time, now, these, the Jewish people really idolized Elijah and Elisha. They really honored them. But when Elijah and Elisha were alive, they didn't honor them. 
That's why Jesus is saying a prophet is not without honor in his own hometown. It's because, because they had this propensity, the Jewish people had this propensity to not honor the prophets. And he brings up their history. He says, you didn't honor Elijah. You didn't honor him in your own, in your own country. He had to go to Sidon to a widow woman to take care of him whenever he was needing to be taken care of when, when Jezebel was chastening. You didn't honor him then, and you didn't honor Elisha. You wouldn't accept the healing that come from him. There were many who needed healing, but God had to send a Gentile named Naaman to Elisha to get healed. Jesus said, I'm here for everybody. I'm not... If you don't accept me, you watch what I do to the Gentiles. And, and that's the way his ministry was. His ministry was to the Jews first. But man, how many Gentile people that the Jews pushed back against did Jesus allow in? How many lepers did Jesus... This is good. How many... Lepers who had the pandemic of leprosy did Jesus lay hands on that nobody else would touch. Anyway, he brought their history up. He, he, he brought up how that they pushed back against the prophets of the old. And, and, and what we're seeing here, what Jesus is trying to show us here, is that unhealthy familiarity drives harsh criticism. When we get into the familiarity and it becomes unhealthy in our lives, it begins to drive criticism. And that's where I'm going to go today. I want to talk a little bit about criticism. Criticism. See, when criticism hits our lives, whenever it enters our lives and our familiarity in Christianity, I'm just talking about Christianity here for right now, is that when we become critical of Christianity or other Christians or things going on in Christianity, it brings a resistance. It brings a delay. And it brings obstruction. And resistance, delay, and obstruction is the definition for the word hindrance. It brings hindrance. Criticism brings hindrance. And what it brings a hindrance to is the revival that Jesus wants to bring to us and through us. When we become critical as Christians, it hinders what Jesus, the revival... He is the revival, wants to bring to us and work through us. It's getting awful quiet in this Presbyterian church. <laughs> See, what hinders, what, what, what I have found, what I, what I begin as, as I'm diving into this revival thing and, and things, and, and I think about the revivals that I've seen, not so much been a part of, 
And, and I begin to ask the question to myself, why, why haven't I been a part of some revivals that's happened around me? And honestly, looking back and why I'm preaching this is because it was for, because of criticism. I missed some of the Toronto blessing because I was critical of what I heard about it back in the, back in the 90s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. I, I missed some of the things that went on at the Brownsville Revival in Pensacola, Florida, because I was critical of some of the things that were going on. I had become familiar with my Christianity that I thought I knew better than what they were experiencing. And so what I begin to look at is I'm pursuing personal revival in my life. Criticism of corporate revival operates the same way when we're pursuing personal revival. It's criticism that can stop personal revival. Criticism. See, when we criticize, we miss the Kairos moments that revival wants to make alive on the inside of us. See, it's those Kairos moments. It's those opportune times that we get to experience along the journey that makes us better, that makes Jesus real on the inside of us, that makes his power tangible on the inside of us. And if we're critical of the things around us, then we stop that or we block that from making us alive. But it's not just criticism alone that is the worst part. But what criticism births in our life that obstructs the paths of revival. Look at here in, in um, Luke chapter 4. I want to finish this out a little bit in verse 28. Are you all okay? Um, I'm still not, I'm still like on my introduction, so I'm, I may be a little bit long today if that's okay, but I really feel like this needs to be, needs to be pushed through. Um, Luke chapter 4, verse 28 from the Passion Translation says this, after Jesus spoke these things, it says, when everyone present heard those words, they erupted with furious rage. They mobbed Jesus threw him out of the city, dragging him, into the, uh, dragging him to the edge of the cliff on the hill which their city had been built, ready to, hur- ready to hurl him off. This is Jesus. He's saying, look, I'm the Messiah. And it ticked him off, especially when he brought up their history. Now, I've had people stand up and walk out and I've had people say, who do you think you are and that your wife is a better preacher than you? But they ain't nobody took me up on a cliff and, and wanted to push me off. Now, that may have went on in their head, but they never did it physically. 
That's why I have bodyguards. <laughs> Got to go through them before you get to me. No, I'm kidding. But these people went into another level of criticism. They went, they, they had already said, who do you think you are? But now they went to another level. And it wasn't a holy another level. It was an unholy another level. And so as I was looking through this and praying about this and having God show me some things, what I found through this, these scriptures here is that their criticism released three barriers of hindrance of revival, three barriers. So I want to give you those barriers today. Now I'm into my message. I want to give you those, I want to give you those three barriers. Is that okay? Or do you want me to come back and do it some other time? Okay. Good deal. You're here. So we might as well do it. So I want, I want to share these three barriers of the, 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 the things, the barriers that hinder revival. Number one, you ready? Number one, unbelief, unbelief. The word, the word unbelief in the, um, in the Greek is the word apostia, apostia. There it is up there, apostia. Now the word apostia in the Greek, I want you to understand that word is like a compound word. But here's the, here's the, the thing is the letter A on the very front of it is a negative participle in the Greek. Is it okay if I teach a little bit? It's a negative participle. So that means that letter A basically says anti. Then the second part of that word, the second compound piece of that word is pistia, which when, when you look at that word in the Greek, it's called pistos. And the word pistos means trust or faith. So when you put those two, word, two, two pieces together, it would be antitrust. So unbelief is antitrust. Now, when you look this up in the, in the uh, Strong's Concordance, which is a good tool to have, the Strong's Concordance says this. It, it literally means, this word apostia literally means a lack of acknowledgement of Christ or a lack of confidence in Christ's power or his promise. That is exactly what is happening here in this moment. He says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. I'm the Messiah. And they said, who do you think you are? The message translation of verse 21 says this. Jesus says, you've just heard this scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. And when he said that, they did not believe him. They did not accept his words. That's why he said a prophet is not without honor or a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown because they didn't accept, they, they had unbelief. They did not believe what he was saying. 
They had a lack of acknowledgement of Christ. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name. So when you bang your thumb with a hammer, you're not saying his full name. The word Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. They did not acknowledge that he was the Messiah. And when they did not acknowledge that, they missed their jubilee. They missed their revival. They missed their Kairos moment. They missed their revival. So for us, for us, we say, well, we're Christians. We believe in Jesus. But see, when we get familiar with our Christianity, sometimes we don't acknowledge his promise or his power. It's exactly what C.W. read last week. I, I love that scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, where it says that in the end times, perilous times will come. In the last days, perilous times will come. And it goes through this whole list of things. In verse 5, it says that, that they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power. They, you, you can be a Christian all day long, but if you deny the power, you are unbe- in unbelief. It's unbelief that denies the power. Amen. So for us, for us, we got to understand that revival happens in moments along the journey. As we walk this journey out, revival happens in moments. And what we've got to understand, and I love that from the message translation about him He says that this is history. I'm making history. You just witnessed history. And when revival happens to us, it is history. It it sets something in time. Kairos sets something in Kronos that now we can go back in Kronos and see the Kairos. That's history. That makes sense? Makes sense to me. I don't know. I'm an Okie though, so it, it's got to be simple. And so when we believe, if unbelief is not acknowledging history, then believing is acknowledging history and therefore putting us in a time of revival. It is acknowledging history. Or better yet, it is acknowledging his story in us. That's what revival is all about. So the number one hindrance when criticism is from birth from criticism is unbelief. Number two, unforgiving. Unforgiving. From that scripture that I just um, said, 2 Timothy chapter 3, This word unforgiving is in that list of the church of the last days becomes unforgiving, therefore denies the power. Unforgiving. It's in the, it's in that, it's in that place. And, and, um, it's one of the errors that the last day church begins to experience. And so the word unforgiving in the Greek is this word aspondos. Aspondos. And if, if you'll see there, once again, there's an A on the front. 
It's a negative participle. It means anti. Anti spondos, or the Greek word is spendo. And that word spendo, this one, this one we're going to have to take a, a, a little bit of time with. Because the word spendo, when you look it up in the Greek, it means offered as a drink offering. Offered as a drink offering or offered as a wine offering, more specifically. See, in the Old Testament, whenever they did sacrifices, whenever they'd bring sacrifices to the temple, you know, whether it be a grain sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, or whatever those sacrifices are, a, a lot of times, many, many sacrifices had with it a libation offering or a drink offering, and that was done with wine. Wine was poured onto the sacrifice before it was offered up or while it was being offered up. So wine is a representative or a symbol of blood. Blood is a symbol of life. So when life is poured out of somebody, it is for the basis of forgiveness. So the wine offering was ultimately a picture of self-sacrifice leading to forgiveness. Are you with me? So in the New Testament, when Jesus at the Last Supper gave his wine, gave wine to the guys, which we take during communion now, right? Wine represented blood, which represented his life, which represented his forgiveness. So that when he went to the cross and all the blood was poured out of him, it was for forgiveness. His life was given for our forgiveness of what? Sin, right? Basically, that's, that's the basic of this. So aspondos, listen to this, aspondos or the word unforgiving means anti-forgiveness or anti-self-sacrifice. In other words, when we do not give forgiveness, we are retaining the wine, the life, the blood, the forgiveness. We are retaining that for ourselves and not giving it. God never meant for us to receive his forgiveness and not give his forgiveness. It does not work that way. We are not a reservoir of forgiveness. We are a river of forgiveness. So listen to this. Keep that in mind. Luke chapter 28. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, verse 28. The New King James says this. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things from Jesus, were filled with wrath. Filled with wrath. I looked up the word wrath. You know what the word wrath means? Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> Literally, from the Strong's Concordance, this says that wrath is an inflaming wine. Goes on. An inflaming wine, which either drives the drinker mad or kills him with its own strength. Wow. 
wrath. When, when we're in unforgiveness, we are in wrath. And when we retain the wine, have you ever heard that saying about unforgiveness? That the one who holds unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. It's wrath. It's the inflaming wine. It's that wine that when we retain it, it either drives us mad or it kills us. So we got to get it out. Forgiveness, we've got to get it out. For us, I want to ask you this question. I want to leave you with this question on this one. For us, is our desire to hold unforgiveness that's behind us greater than our desire for revival that's in front of us? Because unforgiveness will stop revival. I want revival. I don't care about the people that hurt me in the past. I love them. Listen, forgiveness works this way. We can't, we can't, we can't hold unforgiveness towards people. It will, it will kill us or drive us crazy. And so many people hold unforgiveness toward other people. Christians, I'm talking to Christians, hold unforgiveness. Well, pastor, now, when I teach, and this is a whole sermon within itself, okay? So I'm not, ta- not going to do that today. But here's what people will say when I teach on forgiveness. Is they'll say, Pastor, you don't know what my parents did to me when I was a kid. You don't know what my uncle did to me when I was a kid. How can I forgive them? Let me tell you something. Forgiveness does not mean you accept what they did to you. But forgiveness means you let that go. You let God deal with them. If you're a Christian, you let God deal with them. You forgive them. That doesn't mean you have to be around them. That means you forgive and forget. (gasps) Well, I forgive them, but I won't forget. Well, God forgot your sin. It says that he cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. It says that he put your sin into the sea, to the depths of the sea. He said that I will remember your sin no more. If God chooses to forget, we can choose to forget. Forgiveness. See, in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, there's so many people around the world praying the Lord's Prayer, and they pray and don't think about what it's saying. He says, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. He can't forgive us of our debts unless we forgive our debtors. He goes on, Jesus goes on in verse, or in in chapter 6 of Matthew from the Lord's Prayer there. He says, if you do not forgive, God cannot forgive you. He didn't say, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. He said, God cannot. Because God is meant for us to be a river, not a reservoir of forgiveness. Amen. All right. I'm going to move on from that because everybody's getting kind of squiggly there in their chair. You're saying, oh no, I got to do something now. So unbelief and unforgiveness. And here's the last one. Unloving. Unloving. That is also a part of second Timothy chapter three. It's one of the, one of the characters there in, in the last day church of having 
um, the form of godliness, but denying the power. And unloving is this word in the Greek. Unloving is the word astorgos, astorgos. A, negative participle again, anti, storgos or stergo. The Greek word stergo is a word, is a word describing love, love. There are four words in the Greek that describe the word love. There's agape, which is the God kind of love, that unconditional kind of love. That's good. That's good stuff. There's the word eros, which is the erotic kind. It's where we get the word erotic. It's the sexual kind of love. Um, There's the word phileo. Phileo is where we get the word Philadelphia from. It's the brotherly kind of love. It's that good, good friendship kind of love. And then there's the word stergo. Stergo is familial love. It is love of family. It is the family kind of love. It's how you love your kids. Yes, we are supposed to love our kids unconditionally. (laughs) But sometimes it's a little bit difficult to love them unconditionally without bringing some form of harsh correction. But the fact... (laughs) Got one or two amens on that one. Uh, The rest of you don't have kids. Anyways... um, or you don't want to have kids or something, you know. Anyways, stergo is that familial, familial type of love. It's, it's, it's the, the, uh, the way you love your aunts and uncles and, and all that kind of stuff. So a storgos, the word astorgos means without natural affection. It means hard-hearted. Literally, it means being numb that when things happen in your life, you're just numb to it. You don't have a whole lot of feeling for whatever's going on, for the people around you, things like that. Criticism will drive a feeling of numbness in our life. We, be, we become numb towards things. Make sense? In Luke chapter 4, this whole thing, this, this verses 28 through 28 and 29 their love, the people's love was so numb that murder entered into their mind. They became so numb that that wrath became a murderous spirit. And they jerked Jesus up. They pushed him out of the synagogue. I mean, they threw him out. I'm not talking about pushing him out or asking him to leave. They threw him out on the sidewalk. And then they grabbed him and took him to the edge of the city. They took him to the cliff and they were hanging him <laughs> over the cliff, ready to drop him. They were so numb. These people are his friends. These people are his relatives. I'm not saying his mama did that. I'm just saying that these people knew him and at one time loved him, but their love has grown numb. At the Last Supper, so Jesus made it through that, right? (laughs) At the Last Supper, he's sitting there with his disciples, and he does the, the Last Supper. You know, he gives them communion and stuff like that. And then he says to them, right before he leaves and goes out to pray 
and is arrested and taken to the cross. He says to them, a new commandment I give to you today, that you love one another. Now he's looking at the 12, the 12 of them sitting there, knowing Judas is there. And he says, a new commandment I give to you today, that you love one another. And I think he said it and looked at every one of them in the eye. That you love one another. No matter how bad it gets, that you love one another. Now, Jesus didn't say this is a new commandment because it was a brand new commandment and nobody, nobody ever heard, what, we got to love one another? <laughs> it was not a brand... This word new in the Greek means to renew. He says... My culture, this culture we've lived in for so many years is so numb that I need to remind you of the revival you've been living in this last three years with me. And I need to tell you to renew your love for one another. Renew your love. Don't let it be numb like everybody else around you because this is how you're going to sustain, guys. This is how you're going to survive. This is how you're going to do life in ministry. Y'all okay? Can I go? Can I keep going? And in 1 John chapter 4, oh, sorry. 1 John chapter 4, the writer, John, gives the concept of of love. And and he says, I got to look at this again. I want to say it right because our love for one another communicates to the world or our unlove for one another communicates to the world. If we in here in Christianity cannot love one another, what's it communicating out there? If we're criticizing one another, what's it say to them out there? That's why I've encountered so many people outside the four walls of the church that when you talk to them about Jesus... They say, I don't have any interest in Christianity because I see you guys not getting along with one another. How do you think that I'm going to get along with you? Rightfully so. Because our love or our unlove communicates to people around us outside to the world. Amen? Amen. So for us, if we let criticism numb our love, then our message of Jesus is empty. And if our message of Jesus is empty, we stop the Kairos moments of revival. And revival does not reach into the world. Because it's not reaching in here. Just seeing how long y'all would sit there in silence. (laughs) So it's these three barriers that hinder revival. Birthed out of criticism, unbelief, unforgiveness, and unloving. So my last point is this. When we get comfortable in our Christianity, that familiarity, we can become critical of what Jesus is doing around us because it's Jesus that's doing this. It's not us. 
We're players in this game. And I don't mean to cheapen it like that, but Jesus is doing this. Jesus is the revival. Jesus wants to flow through us. Jesus wants to bring it to us and take it through us. And I love what it says, you know. I don't, I don't want to leave you hanging out there with Jesus. I don't, I don't want to leave you hanging out there. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Verse 30, Passion Translation. It says, but he walked right through the crowd, leaving them all stunned. He's hanging there. They're hanging on to him. He's looking over the edge. They're pushing him. He's not in fear. He just goes, not today, boys. And he turns and he walks through them. They can't put hands on him. Because where he's at in his Kairos moment, having confidence in God, they cannot, they cannot keep a hold of him. They can't push him. There is the power of God on him. And he turns and says, not today, boys. <laughs> and he walks through them, walks down the street, walks out of town, and does not go back. Here's my point. We may be able to hinder revival, but we will never kill revival. Jesus going to do what Jesus going to do. And if you don't want revival, you are happy in your familiarity and you are happy in your criticism and you're happy in where you have brought yourself to and, and, you, and you feel good about your three years as a Christian or your five years as a Christian or your 20 years as a Christian or your 50 years as a Christian, you're happy with where you're at and you got it all figured out, then you can stay there and not experience revival. Amen. But as long as you're breathing, there is a revival for you. As long as you're breathing, Jesus has got a revival for you. As long as you're breathing, Jesus is taking you to a whole nother level. He's always taken us into Kairos moments. Always taken us into revival. It only hinders our reception of revival that he wants to bring to us and through us when we're critical. And we allow the familiarity to drive who we are. Here's what I say. We need to get unfamiliar with him. That's why the Bible says, return to your first love. In Revelation, it says in, the, in, in one of the churches, return to your first love. What is your first love? It's what Jesus did to you from the very beginning. It's when you got excited about becoming a Christian. When you became a Christian, you went, this is different. God is doing something every... You remember that time? I got to hurry. You remember, you remember back then? Do you remember back then when Jesus... 
you experienced Jesus for the first time, you encountered him, everything was new. Everything was learning. Everything was awesome. Everything was like, blow your mind good. But we get to a point. I mean, I'm, I'm 27 years into this thing. I'm, I mean, I was saved as a five-year-old. At 17, I walked away from God. At 24, I came back to him. I'm, and I've been serving him ever since. And I said I would never go back. But let me tell you something. I've got close to going back, not because I want to go back, but because I've grown so familiar with him that I thought I had arrived. I want personal revival, y'all. This is the reason I want personal revival. I want the power of God. I want the promise of God. I want God to do something bigger in me than he's ever done before. You know what? I don't know if I should say this or not, but but really, really, screw this Parkinson's crap. I want, I want something better. I want something better. I want something better. We want something better. I want something better. Amen. God can do it. Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. And we just got to step in there. Amen. All right, let me, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Father, right now in Jesus' name, we're just going to get real simple here. And God, we repent of our criticism. We repent of our familiarity with you. God, for the times that we stand and we look at other believers or we look at what's happening in other believers' lives or looking at what's happening in other congregations or or what's happening around the world, we look at those things and sometimes we get so critical of those things and we, and we, God, we allow these things to hinder our revival. But today, God, we say no more. No more. We repent. We turn away from those things. We, like Jesus standing there at that cliff, we just pull our coats up and we say, not today, not today. We are going to receive the revival that you have for us. I thank you, Father. I thank you. We say, we say no to criticism. God, we say no to addiction. We say no to those things that try to stop us from moving forward. We say no. We say no. We say yes to you. Father, that's all you, when you gave us Jesus, that's all you asked is for us to say yes to him. Right now, I want to say this. Sometimes we, as Christians, pastors and ministers, we get in this moment and we say, if you want to receive Jesus, raise your hand, come forward, pray this prayer. But Jesus never said that. He always came to his people, the people that he he was calling, and he says, would you come and follow me? And all that they could say was yes or not go. But we're saying yes today. We're saying no to the world. We're saying yes to him no matter where we're at, whether we've been in this thing for years, whether we're coming for the first time today, we say yes. So Jesus is asking, would you come and follow me? And what is your answer? All three of you said yes. What is your answer? All right. Thank you, Father. 
So I trust that when you said yes, your life just changed. You just stepped into a Kairos moment. Even if it's the, the 158th time you said yes to him, you just now stepped into a Kairos moment. And I want you to believe that he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And he's the one that brings Jubilee to your life today. Today. I received Jubilee. I received, say that, I received Jubilee today. I received my restoration. I received revival. I am alive because of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.